0: Welcome to Expert Gold Radio, which shows you how to leverage your leadership. Here's your host, Gahan Pereira, for this month's show. Welcome to Expert Goal Radio for July 2013, and Happy New Year! As for businesses in Australia, it's the start of a new financial year. Hope it's going to be a very successful one for you. I've got big plans for this year, and I hope that you do as well. This month we're going to focus on work: how it works, how it doesn't work, and different ways of working. My feature interview this month is with recruitment and talent expert Ross Clenett, and Ross and I talk about the way that work has changed. And then Chris Pudney and I talk about how to outsource work, which is a big thing that's happening with many organisations now. So let's jump right into the interview with Ross. Hello, this is Gihan Ferreira. I'm speaking today with Ross Klenit, who is a recruiter's recruitment expert. Uh, and I've known Ross for a long time. I'm always impressed by the breadth and depth of his knowledge and wisdom when it comes to things like jobs and recruitment and, and the whole world of work. So I'm really pleased to be speaking with him today about the way that things have changed, about the way that work, employment and the whole concept of having a job, uh, those, those have changed so much in today's world. So welcome, Ross. Thanks, Gihan. Uh, let's start with a bit of background uh, because I know that you've had both practical background in the industry of recruitment as well as being consulted consultant to the recruitment industry now. But t- tell me a little bit more about how you actually got to where you are now.
1: It was a bit of um, a non-linear journey. I'm originally from Hobart and I did an economics degree at TAS Uni without any particular idea about how I would use that in terms of a career, so I was uh, fortunately rescued from having to make an early decision by a friend who was uh, travelling, and he was going on the Trans-Siberian on his way to Germany, and he said, you ought to come, so I leapt at the chance, and as a result, I finished up in London, walked into an agency, recruitment agency, and they offered me a job, and I also had an offer with Contiki. And uh, at that point, I thought the recruitment opportunity might be something that would uh, be a little more long-term than Kentucky. So I took that opportunity and started as a permanent recruitment consultant with, with uh, what was known then as Accountancy Personnel in London, February 1989. They're now known as Hayes, and they are the largest uh, specialist white-collar recruiter in the world. So I worked for Hayes in London for a couple of years, uh, returned to Australia, and work for three different em- employers. And in total, I had 14 years as a recruiter uh, and a leader of recruiters. And then I decided I'd go out and do my own thing. And I bought a franchise, and it was a bad one, and I went broke. <laughs> so that was a bit of a learning for me. But having made the break from being an employee, I wasn't prepared to go back. So I uh, gained some training as a coach, and I started firstly as a life coach, And then I moved uh, into recruitment coaching because I had some people who knew me from the recruitment world ask me to coach them and their staff. That progressed into training, which then progressed into keynote speaking, and now has progressed into an annual subscription membership website, and that's for recruitment agency owners and their employees. And all of this has been underpinned from a sales and marketing point of view by by my blogging. And I've been blogging once or twice a week since September 2007.
0: And I love your blogs, uh, Ross, because the thing that I love is people who've got depth in what they talk about. And and your blog posts are always, always really in-depth. And I do want to get into some of the depth of the research that you've done, Ross, uh, because I love some of the stuff that you've done, and some of it's a bit counterintuitive as well. Uh, But let's start with the big picture. So the, the world of work has changed And what have you noticed are the biggest changes in the world of jobs, employment, work in general?
1: Well, there there have definitely been many changes, Gihan. There's just five that I want to mention that I think are particularly significant, and these are the ones that I believe are the major ones. Firstly, most obviously and most publicly spoken about really is the change in the balance between demand and supply in the Australian labour market. Just to give you an example, 20 years ago, we were in the midst of the recession we had to have. We had unemployment at 11.2%. We had a ratio of unemployed people to job vacancies at 25 to 1. Mm -hmm. And then just before the GFC, unemployment was down to 4.2%. And the ratio of unemployed people to job vacancies was down 90% to 2.6 to 1. And now we have unemployment 5.6% and the ratio of unemployment to vacancies, 4.3 to 1. So, clearly, the balance of power has shifted to the employee, not um, from the employer. Um, Secondly, demand for skilled employees has definitely jumped significantly. Uh, The ABS tells us that now three of every four new jobs that are created are for higher-skilled people. Thirdly, opportunities for skilled Australians to work outside Australia has grown. The ABS estimates that we have around 600,000 Australians, or 5% of our labour force, working outside of Australia at any point in time, which does sound a lot, except if you consider that around 20% of the New Zealand workforce works outside of New Zealand. Uh, in fact, three-quarters of those people work in Australia. So New Zealand has a much greater proportion of their workforce outside of their country than Australia. We've also got the, the flip side, which is uh, overseas outsourcing. No doubt people have read a lot about that over the last few years. I don't have any hard data on that trend, but it certainly would be fair to say it's become a lot more common in the last five years. Fourthly, non-permanent employment has definitely become more popular. In 1998, we had 19% of Australia's workforce in contract, temporary or casual employment. And now in 2013, that's gone up to 28%. And it's mainly contracting accounting for that growth. It's actually grown fourfold since 1998. And over just over 1 million people today in the Australian workforce classify themselves as contractors. And finally, the fifth area, and this is beyond the statistics, um, it's really the way the World Wide Web has transformed the workplace and the process of finding a job, specifically the transparency that the internet provides. And this is something that employers are really grappling with. So you know, if we look at employer transparency, the obvious one, and most people would be familiar with, people posting on Twitter or Facebook, about their job, about their place of work, whether they like it or whether they dislike it, commenting on blogs. That's done now in a more formal way. Uh, Rate your employer websites. In Australia, Job Advisor would be the one that people would probably know. And in the US, Glassdoor uh, has been around for quite some time, where you can go onto those sites, you can rate your employer, you can leave comments, and then that allows you to see comments and ratings of other places of work. Now, employee transparency, on the other hand, and most popularly, uh, would be LinkedIn. And, I mean, LinkedIn really is the resume of the 21st century, well, for skilled white-collar jobs anyway. And without doubt, for skilled employees, it's never been easier to be found by a recruiter or a potential employer. And so your own knowledge of your value in the marketplace um, is generally very good and far greater than it's ever been. Uh, they're the five major areas where there's been um, the most significant shift in the last 20 years or so.
0: Great. And that's fabulous because I've been frantically taking notes, us, and there's so much I want to ask you about that. I guess there are a lot of people, like you mentioned, employers, and there are a lot of people in organisations who are affected by this, not necessarily the the person who's going to be that you know the direct manager of the person that they're employing so I'm just asking just again from a big picture viewpoint what is this all, all of these trends uh, particularly the last few with the non-permanent employment and the world wide web and the whole transparency thing what does this mean for senior management for business leaders and and for people who are business owners
1: well I think going back to the point I made earlier Gihan very simply the balance of power has shifted and it has shifted to employees and specifically skilled employees. And so for an employer, whether you're a manager or whether you're an owner, the onus is providing challenging, interesting work in a positive environment with at least at-market remuneration and benefits, hopefully above-market remuneration and benefits. Um, And unless you do that, the best people will go And as an employer, you'll be left with the lesser performing employees, those people who have far fewer choices in the workplace. And what that means that owners and managers or leaders have to do is they have to have a clear talent strategy. And in very simple terms, a talent strategy is a strategy that specifies the capabilities required by the organisation both now and into the future how those capabilities will be recruited developed and retained and uh, most organizations are woefully deficient in this area I think would be fair to say
0: okay and obviously with what you're saying about the greater transparency organizations that are deficient they get uh, they get caught up pretty quickly or they're pretty they're exposed even before the employee starts working for them
1: yes yes they 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 get found out uh, <clears throat> um i ha in fact an example, a friend of mine uh was called by a recruiter and was uh, put uh, a job was put to them and she'd heard of the organization but only heard of them didn't know much about them <clears throat> and so she googled that employer and on the first page of the Google search were three separate entries for unfair dismissal cases that had been taken to the Commission, the fair Work Commission mm-hmm. and having read that and digested what was said because of course all of that is public information, she decided she wasn't interested in working for that organisation. And she didn't even go for the interview just based on what she found on the first page of the Google search. So I think that's a very good example of how employees or potential employees can make a decision about an organisation just based on what they find on the internet without even turning up at your premises.
0: And that's a great example, Ross, because that's like the flip side of what we hear a lot in the media about employers who are turning down candidates because... Of something inappropriate they posted on Facebook or something they've tweeted about the employer.
1: Yes, yes, exactly. It's uh, the opposite side of that. Uh, transparency works or doesn't work, as the case may be, <laughs> yeah. both ways. Both ways. I'd
0: say, I'd say it works because it obviously wasn't a good match either way. That's right. I remember about 15 years ago, there was a really big push in the in the Australian workforce about this whole employer of choice thing, Ross, and I'm sure you remember that. And I was just reminded of that when you started talking about talent strategy, because at the time, I remember, I mean, I'm sure that a lot of organizations did the right thing, but it seemed that there was a a reasonably high emphasis on things like, um, I guess, frills and uh, perks and things like making sure you have a healthy workplace and uh, it wasn't necessarily related to the whole idea of talent and career path and progression. Do you think that's still the case or do you think that people are, have to be provide a more meaningful and in-depth talent strategy now?
1: Well, I think what has become clearer, and this is particularly from uh, what you read in terms of Google and Apple, in terms of their strategies, is that it's about the work itself, Gihan, that the work itself has to be challenging and interesting. And yes, you can provide a great environment where there's free food and you can bring your dogs to work or, you know, whatever it might be, lovely benefits, but if the work itself is boring and not challenging, then all of that other stuff doesn't matter. And the companies that are really getting ahead understand that the best people like interesting and challenging work and so those companies focus on providing that interesting and challenging work and yes all of that other stuff's great you know whether it's free food or discounted parking whatever but yes that's great but it's the work itself uh, is the key factor
0: Okay great and and that actually reminds me that I was reading some research that that you quoted Ross in your blog and it suggested that some of the problems that get a lot of media attention aren't reflected in reality and there's all this talk about workers not being loyal and they're jumping around and they're always looking for looking out for themselves but perhaps that workers are more loyal than ever before and i guess there's i guess there's some basis to that and there's some reason for that so tell me a little bit more about that because it does seem a bit counterintuitive
1: Yes, and um, I, I'm sure for your listeners, Gihan, it will be a mighty shock to know that sometimes the media focuses on stuff that makes a good story, really, rather than the less exciting reality. And this is actually a good example of that, because um, here's some facts that uh, your listeners might be surprised to know: The share of workers with long tenures has increased over the past 20 years in Australia. Um, More specifically, the proportion of workers who've been with the same employer for 20 years or more has increased from 7.5% of the Australian workforce in 1992 to 10% in 2012. Average tenure of employment for Australian workers generally is seven years as average tenure for the Australian workplace work, worker is seven years, more than 40% of Australian workers have been in their current job for more than five years, and 25% of workers have been in their current job for more than 10 years. So there is plenty of evidence to suggest that a very solid minority of Australian workers are, in fact, very loyal. And I think, I
0: think you're exactly right, Ross, that that, that isn't a big story Whereas the story of people losing their jobs because they get outsourced to India or the manufacturing gets outsourced to China, that is a big story. But as you say, like that's amazing. Like seven years is the average 10 year. I'm surprised by that as well.
1: I, I was too. And that information is direct from ABS and Reserve Bank reports. So it is government validated statistics and surprised me. I've got to say when I, when I first read it, I was very, very surprised.
0: Yeah, and that's a, that's in an environment where, as you said, the web has changed things in a lot of ways. And one of those is with things like freelancing and outsourcing, and this this whole geo arbitrage idea, where you can you can hire talent from other countries for specific projects and specific jobs, specific tasks, where there's they've got specialised skills, and sometimes for for cents on the dollar. So, what's your view on that? Is that how is that changing the landscape, and is it affecting? people who are in permanent jobs or, uh, well, even in recruitment, in the whole recruitment industry.
1: It is. Um, hard, hard data is difficult to come by, but certainly there is substantial growth in sites such as Elance, Guru, uh, Freelancer, uh, Freelancer CEO Matt Barry, who's an Australian, has stated that his business is doubling every year. And that growth showing no signs of slowing down. So clearly it's increasing in popularity. And I read a report from Deloitte, the professional services firm, last year. And that report was called Digital Disruption, Short Fuse, Big Bang. And uh, this is one of the quotes from that. It says, The distributed workforce allows the very best talent to be sourced from across the globe to work in virtual teams. Organisations and operations in remote or less populated locations that have historically found it difficult to attract and retain talent are finding some reprieve in these workforce model changes. So I think that um, specifies it pretty clearly. I think in terms of the impact, I think we're going to see a significant impact in the future. We're just starting to see it. And, of course, where most people hear about it, Uh, is, is in the area of call center, uh, jobs. But higher skilled work, higher skilled white collar work in IT, accounting and engineering, I think that outsourcing will increase dramatically as more and more English speaking graduates are produced by countries such as India and China and the power of the net becomes greater. And I think all of those uh, changes are, are things that will cause a, a very big disruption to the traditional Australian skilled white collar job.
0: Yes, and I remember actually reading that same Deloitte report Ross, the Digital Disruption Report, and I think one of the things, one of the big points they made, is that the, that Australia is just not ready for it yet. And a lot of organisations in Australia, except for a minority, most organisations just have no idea what's about to hit them.
1: Yes, I, I would, uh, agree with that. And I mean, just a, I mean, a very simple example that your listeners would be aware of would be, um, the book selling industry. Mm. Uh, clearly that's caused a massive, uh, the internet has caused a massive, uh, change there, but there are still opportunities. And I think what we have seen in retail will now move across into professional services. And I think that I don't think people can really imagine how massive this is going to be. I, I predict in 10 years' time it's, it's going to be the thing that people really talk about, the outsourcing of skilled white-collar jobs. Certainly in America it's been very, very front of mind and it's gained a reasonable amount of media attention a little bit here. And I think we've been protected because of the, the mining boom, and that's generated a lot of direct jobs and indirect jobs. But I think in you know, the year 2020, 2025, uh, it's going to be quite different.
0: Yeah, and I was just thinking about this recently because uh, at my university, the University of Western Australia, has a graduate mentor program where graduates can mentor the current students. That's a fantastic program, and I only found out about it three years ago and have signed up for the last three years to mentor somebody and the first of those three years, so three years ago, I had somebody, a computer science student, uh, who I was mentoring for six months and it was really valuable for both of us. And I've signed up for the last two years as well, but been no, there's been nobody who's been a mentee in that area. And I think uh, like jobs like computer science jobs, people, we aren't even getting students enrolling in those, in those courses now, certainly not in the sort of numbers that were enrolling when I was, when I was going through university
1: yeah look at the, uh, i mean it doesn't it doesn't surprise me people or students perhaps see that as a long road to fame and fortune and particularly in western Australia, mining is a shorter road, and mm. maybe there's more attractive courses
2: mm.
0: and I think that there are they are also competing with lots of really well educated english speaking people from Bangalore who can do the same thing yes yeah. yes no doubt yeah let 's uh, just changing subject for a while, Ross looking at telecommuting because that seems to be another trend, another one that the the internet has facilitated um, because more and more people want to work from home either part time or full time and I know people who are doing both and uh, I know recently yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer created a big debate. Uh, when she ordered all Yahoo employees back to the office, but it does seem to be a growing trend, and um, I'm just curious to know what are your views about that in terms of productivity, innovation, collaboration. What's what's uh, what do you think is the uh, the pros and cons of telecommuting?
1: Well, firstly, I think it is growing. I don't think it is growing substantially in Australia. Um, I think what we're seeing, and picking up on what you said about Marissa Mayer, that Companies understand that the opportunity for collaboration and innovation is much greater if people are in the office. And as a result, companies are spending a lot more money on their facilities. You look at the quality of workplaces, the actual physical environment and what's provided to employees, that has uh, gone up substantially on average, in the past 20 years. And I think that's a result of companies understanding, hey, we need to make it attractive for people to be at work. However, what uh, is very clear is that the uh, female proportion of the workforce is generally much more attracted to come back to work and to work uh, more hours if they can do more hours from home. And... um, you know, there are a lot of very, very skilled women in the Australian workforce and also very many that actually aren't in the workforce at the moment because the options for telecommuting perhaps aren't as great as as they would like. So I think there are certainly opportunities there. I'm not seeing that it's growing substantially, but I think for the um, engagement of the female part of the workforce and the retention of the female part of the workforce, it's very important.
0: Yeah, and you make a good point about the, the female part of the workforce, Ross. And in fact, when Marissa Mayer did uh, announce this, the, the, the initial backlash, which I thought was quite unfair, was about her because she was a woman and it was seen that she was uh, letting, down her, letting down her tribe because it was women in the workforce who, who were going to get the most from telecommuting.
1: I suppose I, I, just feel that that, that particular decision has received undue attention. Mm. Uh, Marissa Mayer's relatively new. She clearly identifies there's some things that need changing. Uh, Yahoo clearly has gone through a pretty well publicized, uh, bumpy period. And all hands on deck. I, I suspect Marissa's thinking if we're going to turn this ship around, we actually need to have people at work working together, building some momentum. So I think in her circumstances, or I, sh- I should say the circumstances of her taking on that role and where Yahoo are, uh, it's probably a pretty good decision. And But I think to generalise and say, well, she's letting down... Females, I, I think is pretty unfair on her.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. So, look, we're talking about bad press. I guess another group that gets a lot of bad press are Gen Ys. And uh it's interesting because... I guess 10 years ago when they were really like moving up the, moving up in the workforce, they were getting a lot of bad press as people who only care for themselves and their own career and their own job satisfaction. And it's interesting now that they're moving into management positions and sometimes into very senior management positions. And, and Alicia Curtis, who both you and I know, she's a Gen Y herself and an expert in, in how young people work. She says that's not the case, that they aren't all good for themselves and they're not always selfish. They, they want to do a great job and they take pride in their work. And if you do the the right things they're not going to leave and you mentioned this earlier ross it's all about giving people meaningful work and if you give them opportunities and mentors and work that has meaning then they'll stay is that your view about that and is there any advice you can give to managers and leaders to make the most of their that their young motivated gen y staff
1: well i think generational differences have gained a lot of disproportionate media attention and generally it's been oversold so i I agree with um alicia i think that gen wise given the opportunity will be committed they will be loyal to their employer they will do a good job they won't job hop but they're not going to do it at any cost again going back to the transparency thing they're very aware of the alternatives and as a result of that, they are making comparisons. And who wouldn't be doing that? I'm sure my father, uh, had he had the same opportunities when he was working, would have done exactly the same thing. So it's more uh, the circumstances of the time. But for employers, I don't think they should give up on Gen Y. Definitely not. Uh, and my advice, going to the second part of your question with With respect to leading young staff, to me it's exactly the same advice that I give or coaching that I give when I'm coaching leaders, regardless of the age that those leaders age of the employees that those leaders are leading. Um, three things very clear firstly, make your expectations clear. secondly, ensure your employee is committed to meeting those expectations so so they're aligned. And thirdly, coach and develop the employee to meet and hopefully exceed those expectations. So if you're doing those three things, regardless of the age of your staff member, you should be retaining most of your employees. And certainly the good ones, you should be retaining a large majority of them.
0: Yeah, great. And that's that's really good advice in general. The other thing I've noticed with Gen Ross, is that there seems to be, with certainly with the more enlightened organizations, I guess 10 years ago, the trend was to say, okay, well, we'll accept and tolerate these Gen but it now seems to be let's embrace them and let's tap into what they can offer that's a little bit different. And they're looking at, they're, they're comfortable with the world that's changing. They're comfortable with technology. They're comfortable with with everything that's happening now and this this fast pace of of business, and I, I can see even some people doing things like reverse mentoring, where they'll actually uh, the Gen Ys themselves want leaders that who can be mentors to them. But equally, some of the more senior people are looking to get mentoring from the younger staff on how to use technology trends that are happening in the workplace, trends that are happening with family life, how to be more socially responsible. And I guess it's a two-way thing, and, and both parties can win in that case.
1: Yes, and I fully agree. I've heard of reverse mentoring, and that's very smart to me because a younger person has a view and experiences and skills that are useful and of benefit to an older person. And acknowledging that both sides can benefit and setting up a structure where, where that can occur through, through a reverse mentoring relationship, I think it's a fantastic idea. And organisations that do that are going to, I would suggest, increase their engagement in terms of their staff and also ultimately produce better results because better ideas will flow through the organisation far more effectively.
0: Great, great. Um, let's look at the future. So what do you think about the future of work? I often say that the world is fast, flat and free. So things are happening much faster, we've, we've broken down boundaries across and inside organisations and, and people are expecting stuff to be free or almost free and margins have become lower, but also costs have become lower. What do you think all of this means for, for the world of work?
1: Well, there are a range of things, but I think right at the core is this, we all need to be learning more, we need to be learning it at a faster rate, And more importantly than the actual knowledge itself is how to apply that knowledge that makes us valuable to our employers, employees, customers, clients, broader network. Because when you consider what the internet generally and Google and other search engines specifically provide, what they provide is knowledge that's available to everyone with an internet connection so it's not the knowledge per se but it's what we do with that knowledge that makes all the difference and uh you know it was really your work with me 6 years ago that had me see the light about that and that that has really helped me in develop my in in, in helping me develop my niche and understanding how i add value and so i'd like to think that the way i go about my business is a good example for how everyone needs to think in terms of getting ahead, not just today or tomorrow, but really in the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you know, be useful, be really useful and be, uh, someone that is irreplaceable.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you definitely are a really great role model yeah, as a thought leader, as somebody who's got a strong online reputation.
1: Well, I've been very clear that that's what I've wanted to develop and um, you and others have given me great tools and techniques to do that and I'd like to think that my investment over five years' time and money has now put me in a position where I'm a sort of living, breathing example of the sorts of things that I encourage others to do.
0: Fantastic. So just before we finish up, there's a perfect lead-in, Ross, because I do want to find out like what sort of clients you like to work with, what do you do with them, and what's the best way for people to get in touch with you?
1: Well, really, there's two categories, Gehan. Uh, Firstly, recruitment agencies. So recruitment agencies generally will use me for uh, coaching. So I coach owners and leaders. I also speak at internal conferences, and I run webinars and training live face to face workshops for recruitment agencies. Then there's the, what I would call the broader corporate market. And for that market, I generally do two things, conduct interviewing training for line managers. And secondly, I speak at internal or external conferences about the trends in the world of work. In fact, some of the data that I've shared with you and the listeners today is data that I uh, share and expand upon in my keynote speaking. And that's an area that's growing for me. It's an area I'm very passionate about. I enjoy it. And I think it adds a lot of value to any organisation to, to sort of see uh, a more global view about how the world of work is changing and then what organisations should do from a talent point of view because of those uh, changes and trends.
0: Great, great. And I guess the best place for people to find you is through your website. Is that right?
1: Yes, the easiest thing, uh, very simply, you go to rossclenet.com, uh, which is C-L-E-N-E-T, or you just put Ross Clenet into Google, and I think about the first 25 pages you'll find me, so it's pretty clear there aren't, (laughs) there aren't too many Ross Clenets around, so, uh, there's plenty of easy ways to find me just by putting my name into your favourite search engine.
0: Thank you, Ross. Thank you so much for your time and for your wisdom and your insights. As I said, I always learn something new when I when I talk with you, and it's been a, it's been a fascinating and very educational uh, conversation today. Hope you enjoyed that. One of the things we discussed briefly was the idea of outsourcing. As Ross said, it's a growing area and one that many organizations, large and small, are using now. Chris Putney and I discussed this in more detail in a
2: recent podcast episode, so let's join that conversation now. Well, today uh, we're going to talk about talent markets, and today's podcast we're going to conduct as an interview because we've both used talent markets, but Giha, and you've used them Far more than I have, so much so that uh, Elance interviewed you a couple of years ago, I think, to uh, plumb uh, your expertise and get some advice on how to use talent markets and Elance in particular for outsourcing work.
0: Yeah, that's right, that's right. And this whole idea of the, the concept of talent market or the phrase may be something that you're not familiar with, but a lot of people would have heard of places like Elance and ODesk and Guru.com and 99designs and those sort of places, which are. Which our talent markets are. They're websites that, they bring people who want to do small projects or even sometimes big projects with people who need them done. That's right. And for how long have you been using them, Giha? I think I must have been using them for maybe, maybe a decade, Chris. And there wow. weren't that many of them around at the time, but certainly been using them for many years with varying degrees
2: of success and we'll probably get to that. You've already answered uh, the first question, Gihan, exactly what talent markets are, but and you said that they're for matching jobs to freelancers who can provide that kind of work. But what sorts of jobs are best suitable to free outsourcing through talent markets? I think the main thing is that it's got to be something that you can do remotely so that you can work with somebody
0: remotely, obviously, so it's not like you're going to get somebody to deliver coffee for you. Um, <laughs> but it's surprising how many things can be done. So the thing, the sort of things I've done, well, we recently, Chris, we got our book cover designed through E-lands. i've got uh, some graphic design done on my website i've had ghost i regularly get audio transcription done um there you can get people who do editing proving uh, all sorts of development, website development uh, a whole bunch of those sort of technical things they they're particularly suitable for that because there are a whole bunch of people around the world with those skills who just want to do them and, and as i said earlier uh, they tend to do them on an individual project basis so you're not employing them you're just using their particular skills for a particular project and at the end of the project, you disband and you go in your own separate way until
2: you need somebody again. And you mentioned that uh, typically you engage people on a per project basis, so why would you do that rather than for instance um, hiring someone locally or actually employing somebody? Uh, why would you do use the talent market instead?
0: Yeah, there are a number of reasons, and you've like you've touched on a couple of scenarios in which you'd use it. So the first one is like let's compare it to doing the work yourself. So one option is you outsource the work because you don't want to do it yourself, and those sort of the reasons for that are fairly obvious because you might think that your time is more valuable and uh, should be spent on other things. Uh, that you may not have the skills, so people other people can do it better and faster, and uh, overall because of that it becomes more profitable because you're spending your time doing the sort of things that you're that you should be doing in your business. This, and you outsource some of the other work to people who've got those skills. Uh, now, if you compare it to outsourcing uh, locally, so you don't have to use these talent markets where you find people around the world. You can find providers and suppliers locally, but it's often cheaper to use some of these worldwide talent markets. And also, another thing that I've found, crazy is that a lot of the providers on, the, on places like Elance and Odesk, they're used to working electronically and remotely, and they they, they're, they're set up for that. They have Skype and instant message and uh, even those sites like Elan's No Desk will have things to make it easier. So they'll have a shared workspace, they'll have a way of paying people in installments, they have a way of sending reminders when milestones are due, all those sort of things, uh, because they they have to be able to work remotely, the website's set up for that, whereas if you're working with a local supplier, you may find that they're very good, but they're not used to working remotely, and especially if you're an out-of-office worker and you don't necessarily have an office uh, nine-to-five, Monday-to-Friday sort of work style, then uh, you might find it more convenient to work with somebody who's set up for working remotely. Um, I guess the other thing is when you 're choosing people we 'll talk about this bit later, but you can, you can have a look at what other people have said about them, what other clients have said about them, and uh, you can have a look at uh, testimonials they 've received, the sort of feedback they 've received, the sort of work they 've done in the past, and how they 've been rated on it and uh, All of that said, you might end up with those even using those talent markets. it may end up that you, that you end up working with somebody who 's just down the street anyway. Mm-hmm and I guess the other thing is and this is a big shift that's happening at the moment is that if you compare it to hiring staff yourself well broadly you don't need to hire staff you may end up doing that uh, sometime later but if you just want to bring together a project team quickly uh, and you don't have those in-house skills you don't have to go through the whole process of hiring a staff member recruiting and hiring somebody to have with those skills what you might choose to do instead especially at the start, is just hire somebody on a project basis through these talent markets and then if you find it's something that you do want to build uh, in-house, to have that skill in-house, then you might want to hire somebody uh, sometime down the track. I guess also, so we talked about this whole idea of... um, you know, how, how it helps your business and what uh, the benefits of talent markets uh, use talent markets for your business but I, I think there's a broader picture as well and uh, the internet has brought people closer together and this is one example where people around the world can collaborate and you really can help people in other parts of the world and one of the reasons that that I use some of these talent markets is not just because it's cheaper and more profitable but it allows me to reach out to people in other parts of the world I can help them financially I can help them learn new skills I can help them um, interact more with with uh, other countries and uh, other cultures. And uh, so the, those are some other reasons as well. And even the financial reasons, the, the financial benefits for them can be quite significant because your dollar can go much further uh, in some other parts of the world. And even if you're working with people in in what we call developed countries, you're still helping to break down some of the things like geographical barriers, uh, uh, culture differences, and overall, you're making the world a better place. So I think all of those reasons as uh, reasons why you might consider getting into working with some of the talent markets.
2: So that's a, a good overview of uh, the talent market space. Uh the next step of course is actually using these talent markets to outsource your work and uh, there are a number of steps involved and the first of those obviously is choosing a particular talent market. So how have you gone about choosing talent markets in the, in the past? The first thing to do
0: is have just think about where the right sort of people might hang out. So if you want a very, very small job done, you might go to Fiverr. If you want a job done for a fixed price, you might go to Elance. If you want something done at an hourly rate, you might go to uh, Odesk. So that's the first thing I'd look at. Uh, As I said, it's not cut and dry because there will be some crossover, but just have a look where the right sort of people hang out. There are also other specific talent markets for specific uh, where, where specific kinds of workers hang out. So I think the, the one that's now called uh, v worker, I think, used to be. I think that's the one that used to be called Rent Guru, Chris, or Rent a Coder. So, if you want sort of programming done, that may be a place that you go to. Mm-hmm. So, even though the ones we've talked about are, are fairly general and uh, and broad, there are specific talent markers for specific jobs. But I think if you're starting, start. I would suggest you start with uh, Elance or Odesk because you'll find a broad range of uh, providers there, and it'll give you a really good experience when you're getting started. Uh, of course, you do have to think take into account things like money, so you have to think about what budget you've got, um, whether you are going to go with fixed price or hourly rate. So those are some of the issues that you have to consider when you start uh, choosing a talent market. But the, I think that the most important thing, especially when you become experienced with it, is that once you find one and you're, you're happy with it... I've generally found that uh, I can get most of what I need uh, by just using Elance uh, and Odesk now. So it's taken me a while to experiment and look at things other than Elance. Um, so once you find one that you're happy with, that you're familiar with, that you're comfortable with, the, the way it works, just keep using that one because uh, that's uh, that's the best way to keep to use this in the long term and especially use providers that uh, you've used in the past as well so once uh, so build up a long term relationship with providers rather than just dipping in and just uh, changing and uh, chopping and changing each time but if we had an experience of that Chris uh, which we might talk about a little bit later with our book Cover Design
2: that's right that's right so once you've uh Chosen a specific talent market. Usually, the first step is to put up a job proposal or a project proposal, so that um, freelancers can bid on it. What sorts of advice can you offer about uh, formatting and presenting a project proposal? Okay, look, I think the biggest piece of advice I can give is don't be vague. So give them enough information
0: to provide a reasonable quote. Because when you put a when you put a proposal out there, now some of them, if they if you haven't given enough information, they will write to you and ask you questions. But it's pretty competitive, and it works uh, it works pretty quickly. So some of the providers may be reluctant to spend too much time discussing it with you because they're worried that you might just choose somebody else instead. So if you provide a vague proposal, then they've really got no choice but to quote high because they don't really know how much work's involved. Um, It's not because they're trying to rip you off. They just have to to be on the safe side because they don't know the details. They have to provide a quote that's higher than it needs to be. So if you provide a lot of detail, it allows them to make an accurate quote. So, for example, if I need some... Uh, transcription done audio transcription I'll generally provide a sample of the audio clip or Chris when we did the out of office book and we needed somebody to do some uh, some ghostwriting for us uh, in our project proposal we provided the outline of the book and even a sample of the transcript that we'd need edited uh, into uh, into a form that reads more like a book so that's the people who are uh, bidding on our proposal, have some idea of the sort of work that they're going to be doing. So by providing the sample, they know how much, they can guess how much work they would how much time they'd take to to edit that and by providing the, the chapter's outline it gave them an idea of how big it's going to be and the scope of the overall work so as much as possible give them enough information to provide a reasonable quote um, as I said before if it's a similar job to one that you've done before use the same providers so if you find somebody that you know, like and trust continue using them uh, there's a whole bunch of don't be tempted to use some of the others even though there's a whole bunch of them that you can choose from and Chris I guess when we should talk about this the experience that we had when we did the book cover uh, for Out of Office, for our Out of Office book. Uh, we just decided to try somebody different. Uh, I'd found this uh, provider, Manoj in India, who'd been great. He'd done a couple of book covers for me. But because we were doing this as a collaborative project, we just decided to go with somebody else. And it, it was a disaster. <laughs> I, I don't think there's any other way of describing it. And in the end, we gave up on that and went back to Manoj um, and look, I think it's just a matter of loyalty and building up relationships. Uh, so, for that reason alone, use the providers that you've used before. Yeah. Uh, would you Would you agree with that, Chris? Or is there anything you want to add to
2: that? I think I think you're right. I think, as you say, we experimented with someone else. Uh, the their their response to our proposal was good um, and they were cheaper than Manoj and so I guess that tempted us a bit and we just wanted, to, I think we also wanted to try something different uh, and we learnt an important lesson as a consequence.
0: Yeah, and look, and when we talked about cheaper, it wasn't that much cheaper either, so it yeah. wasn't, certainly wasn't worth the, the, the extra expense and frustration and hassle mm-hmm. from, our point, uh, from expensive time and, and focus and energy. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it certainly cost us a lot more than the money that we saved.
2: Yeah, you're right, and I think because it was only a small, the project was a small in cost, and so only a small difference. We thought, well, we're not risking much money by trying someone new, but um, we, what we risked instead was the time of uh, wasting the, the, the time we wasted in managing this project that turned out to be a dud yeah that's right and I, I, that actually leads on to the next point if you're starting
0: with one of these talent markets don't pick a really big important project especially if you're working with somebody new so choose some choose something that's small that's easy that uh, is going to be relatively cheap and you don't mind losing the money if that's what it comes down to so in the worst case scenario if things get delayed to the extent that you have to find somebody else that's that's okay for you and you lose the money that's okay for you so choose a small project don't choose one that's close to that's got a very Deadline. Don't choose one that your biggest client is going to <laughs> sack you if you if you don't deliver on time or on budget. Uh, so if you're starting with with a new provider, those are the sort of things to look at. Uh, and also, I would, in my project proposal, I generally ask people for samples of similar work that they've done in the past. And uh, be careful, you can't ask them to do some work for you, so you can't ask them to like do a transcribe the first few minutes as a sample because you can't ask people to do free work for you but you can ask for similar work that they've done in the past. That said, there there will be some providers who just, of their own initiative, will actually do some of the work for you. I remember a programming job I did uh, that I uh, wanted done a few years ago, Chris. I Put out the proposal and it turned out to be for for one of the providers, it turned out to be so easy that in his response, he said, look, I've done the work for you. Here's the, here's a bit of software and uh, it was done. And it was so I had no, no hesitation then in awarding him the job because I could, he'd actually done the job in the, in the day that it took me to uh, before I started assessing other proposals.
2: Incredible. Yeah. Well, suppose you put up uh, a, uh, a detailed project proposal. I remember when we did this for the uh, the book cover design uh, on Elance, we got a flood of responses, tons of responses. So, there's the next step. Usually, is going through all those responses and um, assessing them in some way. So perhaps you could provide us with uh, the steps involved in assessing that flood of responses.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And it is just a case of assessing it. And uh, what you can do is use the tools that the talent market, that the website, has provided for you. So there's a, there's a few things that you can look at, and none of them are guaranteed, so I've found that even working with providers that have used in the past uh, who have been reliable, sometimes the next time around it's not going to be as reliable. And we even found that with uh, Manoj, that he was a little bit slower and he had some other things going on in his life at the time. So you're not always guaranteed to get uh, – so this process of assessing isn't always guaranteed to give you the best result. Mm-hmm. However, it will give you some – here's some rules of thumb that you can use. It will give you some good guidelines. The the first thing is, and it's surprising how many providers will do this, I guess they're responding to a lot of of proposals. They will just do some sort of generic cut and paste of basically their blurb. So it'll talk about who they are, what sort of services they provide, but they haven't actually responded to your project. So those people who just respond with the generic cut and paste, I just ignore them. They they automatically go into the dustbin uh, because they haven't even taken the trouble to respond to me. It may just be that they've got so much work that, they, that they're trying to respond to, that there's just a numbers game for them, but I would rather work with somebody who's taken the trouble to have a look at what I've actually asked for and is responding to me specifically. So that, and that also leads to the next point, which is something I mentioned before, which is looking for samples of work that they've done in the past. So I want to make sure that uh, that they've done similar work to what I'm looking for and to see some examples. Again, it's not guaranteed, but it's a, it's a good rule of thumb.
2: Yeah, and I, I remember when we were doing the process for the book cover, you, uh, you went and uh, weeded out all those um, cut and paste ones as you described them or the ones that were ridiculously expensive and that left a, a smaller subset for me to, to go through and have a look at as well. So that first pass where you just made a quick decision based on those simple, that simple rule of thumb was quite effective in uh, reducing the, the number to look at in detail.
0: Yeah, that's right. And you just raised a point, Chris, which we should also mention, is that if you're collaborating, so like you and I were working on this job together, Elance and the other talent markets do allow you to, as a team, as a provider, so you can invite other people in to to look at the bids. And then so I did, I went through, as you said, that I did the first pass and I even added comments next to each one, which the provider couldn't see, but you could see. So you could see the comments, you could add your own comments, and it helped us shortlist and then eventually pick one or two so other things that you look for uh, I look look for the feedback look for testimonials and comments from past clients Uh, particularly past clients who requested similar work so you'll find that many of these providers do a number of services so if you're looking for so let's say a graphic designer they may do uh, web graphic design they may do print design they may do book cover design if you're looking for somebody to design a book cover have a look at past work they've done with book covers and see what people are see what other customers have said about them Um, sometimes customers have been and sometimes they don't realize. So sometimes they blame the provider for things that are actually their fault. So sometimes they take it with a grain of salt. But if you look for, um, you get an overall view. So one bad, one bad testimonial shouldn't disqualify somebody. But uh, have a look at the overall sort of comments and the ratings that that other customers give. And, and then when you look at things like price, experience, and location, some those things do matter to some extent. But I would say don't automatically go for the lowest prices. Um, and do have a look at how many jobs they've posted in the past on these talent markets, like Elias will tell you how many jobs they've done, and the average um, dollar amount of those jobs uh, recently and in the last six months, but That alone, so that's a good indicator, but that alone uh, shouldn't be something that uh, disqualifies somebody who hasn't done much work. Because if they haven't done much work on Elance, it doesn't mean that they are inexperienced. It just means that they've never, they haven't done much work on Elance. They may be very experienced and so you, that shouldn't automatically disqualify them. Um, And there are some jobs where location does matter. So it may be that you want to be in the same time zone because you want to be phoning or Skyping quite a lot. It may be that they do have to have a good standard of written English because you're getting them to do writing for you. Uh, and there may be other specific things where their location, either their country, their culture, their currency, their time zone does make a difference. So those are some of the other things to look at.
2: Yeah, okay. So it's decision time, and you've, uh, you've gone through all your proposals and uh, you've picked out a few. How do you make that final selection? This is one thing that you can you can agonise over for a long time.
0: So I don't think you should. I think you should make a short list and then pick one and then work with them. Um, some people do do a lot more. So some people, especially if you've got a bigger project, you may want to um, go into like have, you can have email discussions with them or through the website you can have discussions through them. You can Skype them and have a have a conversation with them if that's if that matters to you. The sort of jobs that I've done on Elance and Odesk, I haven't needed that. And in fact, even if providers have said, uh, do you want to have a Skype chat, I generally Uh, decline that invitation because I really want to it's a small job and I want to do it online and uh, I want to make sure that I can work with somebody who's happy to work just by just through email and just through that website so I think the main thing is just pick somebody quickly and get the project underway
2: Okay, and and so you've done that you've finally made your final decision you've got your freelance provider and the project starts Uh, what happens then what sorts of things do you need to do once the project is underway uh, look, I, th- I think the biggest piece of advice I'd give is don't
0: just leave it till the very end to find mm-hmm. out if there are problems. So set, so start, start by writing a really good project brief and set uh, uh, lots of intermediate milestones. Obviously, if it's only going to be uh, a simple job where it's go- they're going to reply to you in three days, no big deal. You don't have to set intermediate milestones. But if there's a fair chunk of work, it's nice to get uh, intermediate stuff from them during the project. So, For example, when we got the out-of-office book, we had some editing done, some ghostwriting done for that. We asked Justine to send us... Uh, the first chapter that she did by a certain date so that we could have a look and see whether it was kind of she was on the right track she could find out whether she was on the right track and then we could adjust things along the way rather than wait until the very end when she delivered everything and then we go oh no that 's not what we want at all so I think if you can set intermediate milestones that's good and also intermediate payments so the provider is uh, is happy because they're getting paid as they go as well and uh, and make sure that you pay promptly so everyone's happy so because generally like you know that you're going to pay, but they don't know because they're dealing with a stranger on the other side of the world so if you can reassure them that you're going to do the right thing by them uh, and you can do that by setting uh, milestones and, uh, and payments along the way then they're going to be happier and they're going to be more motivated to do a good job for you as well.
2: And what if they've got access to, say, if they're doing a web design project and they have access to a website that uh, you own, uh, how do you give them access to that sort of thing? Yeah, that's
0: actually, tr- that's actually a good point. So you do have to be careful when you're giving out passwords and things like that. So uh, when I recently had some graphic design work done on my website, I actually copied the website over to another, um, another server under another domain name and gave them access to that rather mm-hmm. than giving them access to my main site. You yeah. may not want to go that far, but uh, so you may have to give people access to certain passwords. For example, if you're going to get somebody to uh, create a Facebook page for you, you have to give them your access to your Facebook account. So there has to be a certain level of trust. Uh, And what you might choose to do is you might choose to change your password. So you may set up a temporary password for the duration of the project and then change it afterwards or you know, give them your access to your main password as long as you're not using it anywhere else mm-hmm. and then change that after the project's complete. For me, what I did was, because I had this temporary website, uh, I could just delete that website after the project was complete. But, yeah, you do have to be, you do have to think about security.
2: Yeah. Okay, and as you say, the project uh, eventually comes to an end. There are a few steps to to complete at the end of the project. So, for instance, with the book cover design, our first provider turned out to be a dud. And with Minaj, even though we were really happy with the end result, there are a few uh, bumps on that journey. So what can you do at the end of the project? The, the the providers
0: on these talent markets they care a lot about the feedback, so the feedback yeah. counts a lot. So the ratings and the comments uh, do make a big difference to them because they know that other other customers will be reading that when they when they're assessing f- them for future projects. So I think as as much as possible, be honest but generous. So be generous with your feedback. So highlight the things that work really well. Um obviously, you don't want to. Uh, mislead future customers because you wouldn't want to be one of those future customers who's misled by overly generous feedback but be positive as much as you can and give them a high rating so unless they're really messed up give them let's say I think Elance a five star rating unless they're really messed up give them a five star uh, rating in each of the categories so Elance has things like punctuality delivered on time uh, delivered to budget um, communication was good that sort of stuff and you can rate each of them from one to five stars so be generous if you can, uh, unless there were really problems with it. Uh, if, and if something did go wrong, again, take responsibility to assess whether it was – maybe it was your fault or maybe there was something that you didn't specify well enough. Uh, and again, don't take it out on the provider. So recently uh, when I did the Fast, Flat and Free website, I, I built it as a WordPress website and I did a basic WordPress design for it. But I got somebody on Odesk, I think, to to – revamp the design of it and I guess I didn't do enough to give him an idea of um, what I wanted so what he did was he just did some minor tweaks to it whereas what I was really looking for was saying look what I've done is basic and I, I don't mind you throwing it away and starting all over again, but he didn't know that. And I didn't really make that clear at the start. So, and I should have. So I, it wasn't fair for me to penalize him for that. I paid him the full amount and um, I just learned my lesson from that for the next time. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so look, that's, that's something to be, uh, to be careful of. So yeah, absolutely give honest and fair feedback and be generous if you can. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, Chris, if you've got things like security uh, issues, like passwords, just change them. Um, even if you trust a provider, it's worth changing your passwords just as part of your
2: standard security policy. Fantastic. So that's it from where to go, from uh, choosing a uh, talent market all the way through to wrapping up a project at the end of it. Do you want to work from virtually anywhere? The internet makes it possible and the book Out of Office shows you how. Get your copy at outofofficebook.com and get more convenience, comfort and freedom in your work life.
0: If you'd like to know more about outsourcing in your business, join my Leverage You program, which is the online program for members of my eGurus community. And next month, in August, it's all about productivity and outsourcing. I'll show you step by step how to set up a project at Elance, how to choose the best bidder, how to manage the project to make sure it stays on track, and how to pay safely and securely. If you're not a member of the eGurus community, please join. It's just $55 a month, and you get access to me and many of my resources, including, as I said, the Leverage You program. Are you a speaker, trainer, coach, consultant or thought leader? If you'd like to use the internet to get more business or deliver your material, join the eGurus community. Find out more and sign up at
2: eGurus.info
0: So that's it for Expert Girl Radio this month. Hope you enjoyed it and hope you learned something that you can use in your organization. Next month I'll be talking to fitness and health expert David Beard about how to stay fit and healthy in this fast-paced world. So look out for that soon. You've been listening to Expert Gold Radio. If you'd like to subscribe, read the show notes, or leave your comments, visit expertgoldradio.com. And
2: remember, great minds don't think alike.